Welcome to First Importance, the official podcast of the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and encouraged today by this message. If you have your Bibles, would you join me in Philippians chapter 2? We'll be looking in verses 1 through 4 today. The title of our message today is Unity, Humility, and the One Who is Worth It All. Unity, Humility, and the One Who is Worth It All. One of the privileges and responsibilities I feel as being your under-shepherd and giving watch over your souls is to remind you, even now that as we've come to this passage, I, I feel a uniqueness as we come to this passage that in the coming days and weeks and months, I'm, I'm, I am no prophet, uh, but I am under the impression, the strong Belief that in the coming days we will have opportunity to live out these words. And any time that these words will be spoken, and any time a message such as this will be preached, I know that the enemy is standing. Almost as if right outside of the doors of this place that we gather to distract us take our eyes, our minds, our hearts off of what really matters. And so what I would like to do today, rather than beginning with a story or hooking you in here to this passage, what I want to do is I want to begin with us now praying, asking God for his guidance, for his protection, and that by his grace we might live out his word. Would you join me in praying, please? Father in heaven, as we come now to your word, we acknowledge that nothing else guides us but your Holy Spirit as we gaze upon your word. We don't want our preconceived ideas and predispositions to guide us here. Father, we understand that as we look at the subject of unity and humility, that the enemy awaits to divide and to fill with pride. And Father, that's the last thing that we desire. We want your name to be glorified amongst us, your people. We long for uh, us to put up no barriers or to grieve your spirit, Lord. We, We want you to be welcome here in this place and to be at work here amongst your people. And so, Father, I pray right now as we come to this passage of Scripture, as we come to this time in our walk with you, Lord, I pray that you would bind the enemy. He has had enough victory in our town. He has had enough victory in our nation. Father, we pray, Lord, as we approach this text, that you would fill us with humility and that we would live for you in this very wicked age in which we live. Equip us today, I beg it. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. We've been going through the book of Philippians, and although we are now toward the end of April, we have now only come now today to the sixth message in Philippians. 
We've had a few detours along the way, but we're still on track to get through this book together by the end of the year. The theme of this book is choose joy. Choose joy. Over and over again, Paul uses the word joy throughout this book. It is to be a defining mark in the life of a believer, and yet so many people in the church today, so many people who claim to be members of the church today or to have their names on the roll of the church are not filled with joy, but rather anxiety and sorrow and fear and yet Paul, writing this book, being underneath the persecution of the strongest nation on earth, that is Rome, being chained to the strongest of their military units, that is the Praetorian Guard, Paul writes this letter to the church at Philippi. They remember fondly how Paul had planted that church, how he had shared the gospel with some women outside of the colony at Philippi, and how God had grown their little church into a fellowship of believers of Jews and Gentiles, poor and rich. He has grown them together. They have heard about Paul's situation. Paul has been mistreated in Rome, falsely accused, beaten on numerous occasions. He was then taken by armed escort to Caesarea Philippi where he stood before kings. For two years, he was in prison there, and then at last he appealed to Caesar and was taken to Rome. And now Paul being imprisoned, being chained to a praetorian guard, he is still filled with joy. A man who's been beaten within an inch of his life, a man who has been maligned, even those who claim to be believers, we learned in chapter 1. Even some of them are ridiculing Paul. They're saying Paul has gotten exactly what he deserves, and yet Paul is still filled with joy because the gospel is proceeding. And in chapter 2, we really begin the meat of the, the admonition, the commands that Paul will give the church at Philippi. I want you to see with me today, as we look at the command that God uh, has given Paul to give to this church, I want you to see with me, first of all, the motivation for following the command that he'll give us in verse 2. The motivation we will find this in verse 9. Now, before we dig down deep into uh, this passage, and we're going to read through it together today, before we dig down deep into this passage, let me ask you a question. What is your motivation for doing anything in life? What is your motivation for, for any of the things that you do in life, for coming to church, for your job, for your relationships? What is your motivation your motivation will direct the intensity that you put in to following that command or to following that commitment. It will affect your passion as you complete it. What is your motivation? Paul here gives us a stupendous and miraculous motivation. Look with me in verse 1. So, all right, Josh, you're not stopping on the first word, are you? It's going to be a long service. Yes, let's stop here for just a moment because no conversation begins at the beginning of the day with the word so. 
If, if it is the beginning of the morning and my wife says, so then I realize I just missed several things that are very important for me to understand the rest of the conversation. And really chapter 2 that number there, that number two, is a bad chapter break because Paul is continuing this thought that he continued in chapter one in verse 27 when he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. In other words, be good citizens of the kingdom of God. Live in a manner that is worthy. He has commanded the Philippian church to let their every action be counted as worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made for them. To put this in further context, in verse 29, Paul says, as you live a life that is, manner, uh, that is in a manner worthy of the gospel, you should understand this, verse, chapter 1, verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul is experiencing that suffering right now. He says you're going to face persecutions from without. He says, so then, because you're to live a life manner, you're supposed to live your life in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And because you're going to face persecution, so then, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy. What he's giving grounds here is for the command that he will give in verse 2, which is complete my joy. So what is the motivation that Paul gives the church at Philippi? What is the motivation that he gives them to, make, to obey and to be obedient to this command given to God given by God to them. What is it? The first encouragement is this. The first motivation is this. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Now, the word if here may seem conditional, but really it's almost like a rhetorical question. As a matter of fact, verses 1 through 4 are one long sentence in the Greek language. So what Paul is asking here is, or what he's not asking, what he's implying is, if there is any encouragement in Christ, then that gives you motivation to obey the command that I am about to give you. So let me ask you a question today, church. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Oh, this is the part where you participate. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Did Billy Graham have a quiet time? You better believe there is some encouragement in Christ. Now, there are many people out here today who've manufactured many false idols, and they've slapped the name of Jesus on that false idol in their life, and they have found no encouragement from him. Well, perhaps they've followed a Jesus of their own making, a, a God who fits them and their desires and the things that they like, and they will go back to that idol that they've entitled Jesus, and they will find no encouragement because it was just something made in their own image and after their own desires. But let me tell you something, friends. There is an eternal 
trove of wealth for those, of encouragement for those who come to Christ. There is encouragement uh, unlike any others to be found in Christ. To the one who is called upon the name of the living Savior, there is encouragement in him. Somebody give me an amen. There is some encouragement to be found in Christ. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 and verses 28 through 30, come to me. All you who are heavy laden, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you ever been discouraged? Have you ever just felt deflated? All the air let out. There's no encouragement to be found around you. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, if you just listen to one word from Jesus, he will bring you joy. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is a friend that is born for times of adversity. Is there any encouragement in Christ? When you begin to get discouraged in the things of this world, I want you to think about Jesus. While the things of this world, they pass away, don't they? The things of this world are unreliable. The things of this world are like sand in your hand. The harder that you grasp onto it, the quicker it falls out. But I want you to know Jesus is unchanging. Jesus is caring. Jesus is loving. Is there any encouragement in Christ? You better, you'd be better off asking the question, is there any encouragement anywhere else? No, not any real encouragement. But if you come to Jesus, you will find that there is real encouragement in him. As you gaze upon him in his word, as you fellowship with him in time of prayer and in studying his word, is there any encouragement in Christ? Paul asks. It's a rhetorical question, but we Baptists don't understand that. We say, yeah, boy, there's a lot of encouragement in Christ. But then he continues. There's another rhetorical question asked. Is there any comfort from love? Is there any comfort from love? Now, the, the word here in the Greek is a compound word. It's the word para, which means with, and the word muthos, which, which means word or speech. And the idea here is that it is, a, it is a word that has come alongside to prop you up. So Paul asked the questions, have you ever been propped up by love? You felt like everyone has abandoned you, felt like everyone, there's no one in your corner, you feel like you're unloved by everyone else. If they really knew who you were, they would all abandon you. I want you to know today that the love of God is good to prop you and I up. Amen? When you feel unloved, when you, when you feel like no one is for you, I want you to know that God really knows you. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. He knows all of those wicked parts of you that you've even tried to hide from him, and perhaps you fooled yourself and you have thought, even for just a moment, 
that somehow it has escaped God's knowledge, that intention, that motive, that thought that you had in your heart or in your mind. God knows all of those things, and he knew all of them before he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. So when you're feeling down and abandoned and no one loves you, and if everyone, if anyone knew who you really are, they wouldn't love you, can I tell you, there's some comfort to be found in love, in the love of Jesus. He loves you like no other. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that God is love. So you know what that means? As eternal as God is, that's just how grand his love is. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. No one can ever love you like Jesus. Is there any comfort from love? Yeah, boy, you know that there's some comfort from love. See, he asks the next question. What about, is there any participation in the Spirit? I think that the better translation here from the Greek word koinonia is fellowship. Is there any fellowship in the Spirit? So let me ask you that question today, church. Is there any participation of the Holy Spirit in your life? The Holy Spirit is not something that you receive later upon some uh, extra experience outside of salvation. When you are saved, you are given of the Holy Spirit. He has uh, used the God, the Father, has sent his son Jesus to come to live this earth and live a perfect life to provide for our salvation. And the Spirit has applied salvation to our lives. Is there any participation in the Spirit? Well, Jesus says in John chapter 16 in verses 13 through 15, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truths. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The righteousness that belongs to Jesus, the sin that belonged to us, the Holy Spirit has applied that righteousness to our lives. See, some of you, you thought, well, you know what, I've just been good since I've got saved. Or I've had some good works since I've been saved. I want you to know all of that, all of the good things that has happened after your salvation, that was a work of the Holy Spirit and his gracious movement in your life. Producing fruit. Galatians chapter 5 and verses 22 through 23 says that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control against things there is no law. What about this, Romans eight twenty six? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever been praying and you just don't know what to say? <laughs> Lord, I don't know what to ask for. I remember, uh, y'all forgive me, I've shared this with you a hundred times. I've only been your pastor six years. This story, you could tell it before I finish it. But I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that January, right before I, the six months before I became your pastor, us taking Bo to the hospital. Little baby Bo. He's not a baby anymore. Turned eight this past week. Took little baby Bo to the hospital. They began to 
run tests and uh, began to put an IV in him to keep him hydrated. We stayed overnight. The next day, I remember the doctor coming in and saying, uh, listen, his creatine levels keep changing. We don't know what's going on, and I will never forget these words. There's nothing else we can do. So we're going to send him to Laboner. We have an ambulance already ready. So Brother Billy had just walked in. It's his gift to always be in the right place at the right time. And he, uh, Sarah and Bo went down into the ambulance, and Brother Billy walked me to my car. I couldn't say anything. All I could do was cry. My, my boy, my, my best buddy. Brother Billy got me to my car. Fortunately, I probably wouldn't have got there otherwise. And then I drove. And I just kept saying over and over again, Lord, I don't know what to say. The next coming days as they performed their test at Le Bonner, sticking him and prodding him, me having to lay down on top of him, Lord, I don't know what to say. But it's almost as if during those times, the Holy Spirit, I didn't hear this verbally, but it's almost as if the Holy Spirit said, it's okay, I do. I know what to say. And even when you don't know what to say, I got you covered. How about that? We can't even always or even really most of the time communicate with God properly and yet the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. So Paul asked the questions in if there is any fellowship in the Spirit and those of us believers who walked with him say, yeah, boy, don't you know there is some fellowship in the Spirit? He continues, and if there's any affection or sympathy Is there any affection in God's love? Is there any sympathy? God can sympathize with every difficulty that we've gone through. He's gone through every temptation that we have gone through, yet he has not given in to temptation in a way. God understands temptation in a way that we never could. Is there any sympathy with him? Yes. Sometimes we lack sympathy. We don't know what everyone else is going through, and we lack proper sympathy. And some might say, well, God, being God, can't fully sympathize. But, oh, my friends, I want you to know that there is sympathy with him unlike any other. And there is affection with him like any other. He's the father that though we ran away like the prodigal, when we came down to the edge of that road, he took off a running. And he come to get us. Is there any affection or sympathy? And we Baptists say, yeah, boy. So what's the mandate? Paul has geared us up here. Here's our motivation for performing this task that is at hand. And what a motivation it is. What's the mandate? Look at me in verse 2. Complete my joy. Now, he's going to tell us how this may be done. But Paul says to the church at Philippi, complete my joy. It's the only imperative in this sentence in the original language. This is the command 
complete my joy. Perhaps you have the King James Version or perhaps another version, and that word says not complete, but it says fulfill, or even a better word, fill full my joy. You've given me this offering, but do you know what is better than just knowing that you love me? What's better, Philippi, church at Philippi? What's better than the money that you sent? What is better? What would complete my joy? Now, how would we finish that sentence? Now, we might finish that sentence with, you know, if we're church-minded, what would fill up Paul's joy maybe would be that we have offerings full. Every week we have plenty of money to take care of the things of the church. Maybe that's what would be on Paul's mind. But that's not what's on Paul's mind. What about new building projects? Uh, Philippi, what would make me happy is if you built a really big structure with a statue of me in there. Actually, that would be the furthest thing from Paul's mind. He would hate that. He would be disgusted and repulsed by that. Absolutely not. That's not what completes my joy. What about a good-sized congregation? A few weeks ago, on Easter Sunday, one of our church members took a picture from the choir uh, back toward the audience. We had a full crowd. And uh, they put it on Facebook. And uh, the next day, I had... Friends calling me saying, man, look at that. Would you look? You should put that on your Facebook or your, 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 your profile. That should be your profile picture. And meanwhile, I can honestly tell you, I'm thankful for crowds. But, I mean, and don't get me wrong. I like a good crowd as much as the next person, right? But it really doesn't affect me one way or the other. I know you say, well, Josh, how can we count? You know, Jesus did not entrust himself to the crowd. Do you understand that? Jesus understood what metric was a proper metric for success in the kingdom. Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. I'm glad for great crowds to proclaim the gospel. I pray that God would continue to fill this place, but that's not what completes Paul's joy. It doesn't complete my joy. doesn't affect me one way or the other. To be perfectly honest with you, what Paul is saying here, to complete my joy, he says to the next verse, in verse 2, be unified. Be unified. That is what keeps his heart beating. Yeah, that offering was great, church, but you know what's better than that? You know what really would make me happy? You know what makes the heart of God happy? That his people be unified together. It was one of his last prayers. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, says, Father, that they would be one as you and I are one. Verse 2 outlines what unity looks like, to be united in mind. He says, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He says this twice. It's couched at the beginning and the end of this verse. They could complete my joy by being of the same mind, and then again at the end of the sentence, of our sentence in English, and of one mind. How could the church at Philippi fill up Paul's joy Well, they could do it by being unified and by being of the same mind. Now, this, I want want you to be careful not to confuse unity with uniformity. Here he's not speaking of that they all have uh, the same likes and dislikes, the same preferences, the same colors of skin, the same background 
uh, cultures from before they got saved. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what Paul is saying here. As a matter of fact, Jesus embraced and loved that his church would be filled with people who are different. I mean, after all, he's got fishermen who are disciples. He's got tax collectors. I mean, he's got even Paul here. Unity does not mean uniformity. I mean, how boring would it be if we all like the same music, we all like the same food, we all like the same hobbies. You think that you'd like it, but you wouldn't like it. He's not talking about uniformity. He's talking about unity. Being same in belief, same in goal. Now, I believe that what Paul is saying here, that if we're having the same mind and if we're being of one mind, that we hold to the same belief. Doctrine is incredibly, vitally important. Amen? Uh, We believe things as Christians that other people around the world do not believe, and it makes us distinct. It makes us different. In studying God's Word and in claiming God's Word as inerrant and infallible, uh, we cannot rightly fellowship with, with other people who do not believe the same thing. But Paul here is saying, have this same mind. Believe the same thing. It's the reason that he's writing these letters, so that you might all have the same mind together, so that you might have the same goal together. Building one another up. Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are around you. Making disciples of all nations. Third John, in verse 4, John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Having the same mind. Believing the same thing about the gospel. Having the same goal. They're united in mind. But unity is also united in heart, having the same love. That is, that our devotion and our love is not primarily to the church. Our love is not first and foremost to the people of the church. But our love, first and foremost, is to the groom of the church. That is, Jesus that we're loving him and serving him and desiring him and longing after him, have that same love. Church, if I could beg you today, we had a new members class, a Discover First class, and I said, at First Baptist Church of West Memphis, the first priority for every church member is to walk with Jesus. Spend time alone with God in prayer daily. Spend time alone with God in his word daily. Fellowshipping with him, loving him. If you don't love Jesus, then you're not a part of the real church. Doesn't matter what, what, you, what papers you got your name on, what windows you got your name on, what things you have dedicated, devoted to you. What matters is that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life love the Lamb. Having the same love, loving Jesus, and then this also applies to loving one another. Because we love Jesus, we can truly love one another. So Paul is commanding them here. If all of these things are true, then be unified in mind, be unified in heart, Uh, Loving one another can be difficult. Loving everyone equally can be difficult. Some people are more lovable than others, and some of you are less lovable than others. 
And the ones who weren't, some of, some of the ones who weren't laughing there, they know, okay. Listen, we're to love one another. We're to have the same love extended out to those people who, uh, who, who are part of the fellowship. And we're to be united in soul. Being in full accord, he says, being in full accord, we are to be united in soul. That means we're family. We're tight-knit. We're close together. That's what Paul's desire for the church is. Now, you've heard the motivation and you've heard the mandate. Now, thirdly, I want you to see the method. The method today. And I'm glad I broke this apart. This is in two different messages. And I'm already running a little behind here. So let's, let's tackle verses 3 through 4 as we see how do we achieve the type of unity that God has commanded from his church. Verses 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. The key to unity, my friends, is humility. And where you find unity, you will find humility. To the extent that humility thrives and flourishes in a church, so will unity. And where humility is in short supply, division will multiply. I heard a famous atheist say once, give me one moral that could not be made up by a secular society. Give me one moral that requires Christianity. And to that, my answer is humility. Humility is the exact opposite of everything that our flesh longs for. So what is biblical humility? He lines it out for us here in verses 3 and 4. Humility eliminates selfish ambition. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition. The word do is not in the Greek text. It's just this word nothing, this big, bold nothing. Nothing that is selfish. Nothing that is selfish should be a part of you. We live in a very selfish world, more so now than ever it seems like. And the church should look like the exact opposite. And yet the church often looks more like the world with selfishness then we look like Christ with selflessness. We live in such a selfish world uh, today. Uh, perhaps you, you may have heard, maybe you don't know, death by selfie is a growing cause of death in the world. Death by selfie. You ever taken a selfie, put that camera, your phone back, take a picture of you with everybody behind you? Death by selfie is a growing cause for death in the world. In July of 2021, a Chinese crane operator fell nearly 200 feet to her death while filming a video for her 100,000 followers on social media. That same month, a 23-year-old hiker plunged to her death while taking selfies at the edge of a waterfall in Hong Kong. In 2017, over 100 people had died by selfie while just trying to get the right frame and the right shot. How ridiculous is that, right? And yet how many people who claim to be believers are experiencing spiritual death and destitution because they have to have it their way? It has to be 
the right shot. Paul here says, I've given you the motivation. I've given you the mandate. Now, here is how you do it. You don't be selfish. Not me first, not my preferences, not my wants. Skip Heitzig, a pastor that I love to listen to, says that the more you do as you please, the less you are pleased with what you do. James gives wisdom to this too. James 3, 13 through 16. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. You show me an area of division in the church and Almost always, when it's not doctrine concerned, there's some division that's appropriate, by the way. We believe that the Bible is God's word, and we have no fellowship with those who do not believe so. We believe that a man can be justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ, and we have no business fellowshipping with those who say that there are other ways to heaven outside of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. But most division that occurs in the church occurs with selfishness, my way, the way I must have it. Verse three, do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That is a word that means empty glory, puffed up with no substance. It's the ultimate display of pride. We've got, to, we, we've got to show ourselves for being bigger and better than we actually are. And Paul says, if you want unity in the church, you've got to put away that selfishness. You've got to put away that puffing up of yourself and that pride. The Bible is clear on this over and over again on pride. James 4 and verse 6, God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Proverbs eleven two: when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs sixteen five. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. He will not go unpunished. What about Proverbs 16, 19? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. You want to ruin your life and ruin the life of your family and loved ones? Do you want to throw a wrench in the church? Be proud. Selfish, ambition, conceit, puffed upness, but the gospel robs us of our pride. We have nothing in and of ourselves but Jesus, amen? Humility wants nothing to do with conceit. We're about to wrap up. Hold on with me. Humility counts or thinks of others. Verse three, he continues, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. We're to count others in our church body as more important, as more significant than even our own selves. 
An illustration comes to mind I read uh, in the newsletter. Uh, it was a CBS Sports. Actually, it was online. I read an article about Max and Marvin. Max and Marvin competed in the Special Olympics in May of 2016. Uh, they competed in the 50-meter dash. It was at a high school in New York, and the gun went off, and Max got off to an early lead, and he was beating everybody by a, a good pace when all of a sudden he looked around, and his buddy Marvin wasn't around. Marvin was trailing far behind. As the crowd cheered for Max to extend the lead, Max turned around and ran to Marvin and grabbed his hand and helped him finish the race. Max lost the race that day, but he won something greater. He looked out not for his own well-being, his own benefit, but he looked out for someone else. You show me a church where others count more other or others more significant than themselves, and I will show you a church that is unified in the gospel. Humility thinks of others preferable to themselves. Verse 4. Humility gives you a right view of yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Humility is not self-neglect. It's not degrading yourself. Perhaps you've heard that C.S. Lewis once said, he was misquoted, Perhaps you've heard him say, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. But that's not what C.S. Lewis actually said. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud and a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. You see, humility is not necessarily thinking of yourself less, even as C.S. Lewis here originally seemed to state, but humility is seeing yourself correctly. It's seeing yourself rightly. The most humble people that I know have no idea that they're humble. You would say, hey, you sure are a humble person. And they would, they would say, what? It's not that they don't think about themselves at all, but by God's grace, they see themselves precisely for who they are. For who they are. In their estimation, they're the worst person that they know. They understand the grace of God better than most. They understand God's love better than most. And they care for one another better than most because they realize that they are just a sinner who has been saved by good God. So let me wrap this up. Paul's given us a motivation. Why should we seek for unity in the church? Well, look at all that God's given us. He's given us a mandate. 
to be unified in mind and heart and soul, to be knit together. He's given us the method. Now, next week, we will see the model, the one who is worth it all. In verses 5 through 11, the Bible says of Jesus, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you for listening to First Importance. It is our prayer that you have been blessed by this podcast. We welcome you to join us in person for worship at First Baptist West Memphis on Sundays at 1045 a.m., where our desire is to love God, care for one another, and share the gospel. Thank you.